right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode with Mark Brody, Columbia professor, uh, the inventor of Strokes Gained, talking, as you might guess, a lot about Strokes Gained, about data and golf, about Colin Morikawa, Tony Finau, Louis Oosthuizen, a lot of the topics we we discuss pretty frequently on this show. It pays to get somebody in here that actually really knows what he's talking about that can help us interpret a lot of data that we're trying to interpret some on our own. There's a great profile on Mark Brody at schwabgolf.com. They do this great series. It's called the Challenger Series. Uh, They profile four or five different people every year, different groups of people every year that are challenging the status quo in some way in golf. They're very digestible, short videos that... You know, put some uh, put some faces to the voices you hear in, in golf and tell their story a little bit and how they're changing some way that golf is being played or, you know, in Mark Brody's case, how data is interpreted and his reach through the game of golf is very deep. So schwabgolf.com, check that out. They got a great series of challengers. Uh, we always try to feature their challengers on our podcast throughout the course of the year. So schwabgolf.com. Uh, and here's our podcast interview with Mark Brody. Cheers. All right. I don't know if you actually collect data uh, on this particular, you know, topic. Whether or not you've, you know, tracking how many times you've told the story behind strokes gained and what it is. But I swear, every time I have somebody explain it to me, even if I think I understand it, I think I know it a little bit better after hearing it explained. So, if you don't mind explaining the concept of strokes gained, both for myself and uh, any listeners out there that may not be 100% familiar. Well, the short phrase to summarize strokes gained is it's progress to the hole measured in strokes. And I think the best way to understand that is is with an example. If you're on the tee on a difficult par four, the average strokes to hole out might be 4.2 for this 450-yard hole. So instead of thinking of yourself as being 450 yards away, Think of yourself as being 4.2 strokes away from the hole. And so an average swing, an average uh, you know shot, would move you one stroke closer to the hole. So you take one swing off the tee, and if you get to 3.2 strokes away from the hole, you're doing average. If you hit a short drive off into the rough, you're you're not going to be 3.2, you might be 3.5 strokes away, and that's three-tenths of a stroke worse than average, or your strokes gained is minus 0.3, or you pipe a drive 300 yards down the middle of the fairway, then you start off 4.2 strokes away from the hole, and after that you might only be three strokes away from the hole. So in one swing, you've gotten 1.2 strokes closer, which means your strokes gained is, is 0.2. So in order to measure strokes gained, it's progress to the hole measured relative to a benchmark, which is usually the PGA Tour benchmark, but, but if you're an amateur golfer, it could be a scratch go- benchmark or it could be a benchmark for an 80 golfer. And it just quantifies what we know and what we see, whether it's a good shot or a bad shot, but it, it quantifies it in terms of these fractional gains and losses. Hmm. I think things really clicked for me uh, in the last year and a half or so. I've gotten to play a decent amount of golf with many tour professionals. 
and I find myself in matches with them. And, you know, I'll hit a good drive down the fairway and they will hit one 20 to 25 yards further than me and in a better angle. And learning how to keep up with them when they have that advantage on me has been maybe the best lesson to learn in strokes gained, right? If you're just out there playing by yourself, you hit a great drive right down the middle of the fairway, you might, you know, you don't have that great shot to compare it to, you know, as to what a true gain off the tee uh, looks like. And I, I don't know, that that was kind of a, a light bulb moment that went off for me. But one, th- one thing I wanted to ask, and I don't know this, when I'm watching TV, when I'm watching golf on TV, what are some examples of perfectly average shots? Shots that gain zero strokes, lose zero strokes. Let's say, you know, it could be a, an example of a tee shot, a shot from 150, a shot from 100 yards. What are What would you say the benchmark is for a lot of the shots that we see on TV? Roughly speaking, uh, a shot from 150 yards in the fairway, if a, if a pro puts it to 23 feet, that's about average. And some people think that's, that's horrible. It's like, no, no, they're, they're, they're much better than that. And they said, no, no, they're not. <laughs> from 200 yards, if they put it to 30 feet, that's, that's an, average, an average shot. There's a misconception that you know, these pros are so good that from 100 yards, they're always within 10 feet, and it's just not, not true. So strokes gained, I think, helps you get some intuition about how good are good shots and how, how bad are bad shots. And it, it also goes the other way, that you could be uh, an amateur golfer and you're 60 yards away in the fairway and a pin is cut on the right side of the green and you miss by about 10 feet to the right and you put it into the sand. You say, well, I only missed by 10 feet right of my target. But dumping that 60-yard shot <laughs> from the fairway into the sand, you're losing about three-quarters of a stroke. And strokes gain really helps uh, you to, I think, you know, pay more respect to hazards. What, so we're talking 150 yards, 23 feet being the average. What, what is, is that an easy, pretty even 50-50 on, uh, as far as that, is that a median as well? Is it 50% of those balls will be inside that? or, or Yeah, bit, and I, yeah. I always quote the median and never the average. I was going to say. Feet, yeah, 23 feet is half inside and half outside, that, that number. And the problem with, you know, all sorts of traditional stats are, are misleading for, for a number of reasons, but... If you throw in, you know, one shot that's 100 feet away or 150 feet away, that really skews the average. So I always look at median. I look at the, the leave and, you know, feet from the hole where half are closer and half are further. What can you, and you talked about that there with the 60-yard shot that gets dumped in the bunker on a, on a, on a right pin. What, what, what is data and stats, what can it teach both professionals and amateurs about where to aim as far as the smart place to aim, what it, what's normal you know, to be expected for your you know, variety of your shot pattern, things like that? Uh, I feel like I've, I've learned a decent amount about that as I've gotten into competitive golf, and it's been surprising to me what that answer is. But I'm curious if, if you're, any of your teaching or work with professionals has, has aligned with any of that. Well, I think the the number one sort of strategy implication, uh, like for amateurs, from 150 yards in the fairway, the median leave for an amateur is 56 feet. So it's it's uh, it's almost 20 yards. So that says you should you should do the best to get the ball on the green, which generally means aim for the middle of the green, because your shot pattern is is so huge that you you. you if, if you go at the flag, you're going to bring sand, rough, 
water into into play, and the the trade-off just just isn't worth it. But in terms of strategy, you should become more aggressive as your shot pattern shrinks. As it gets smaller and smaller, you can afford to to fire at a flag. So. When does your shot pattern get smaller? Well, it gets smaller as you increase in skill. So from 150 yards, an 80 golfer has a smaller shot pattern than a 90 golfer, and a pro has a much smaller shot pattern than either an 80 or a 90 golfer. So that's why you would see pros being more aggressive from 150 yards than amateurs should be. But as you get closer to the hole, generally your shot pattern shrinks. So from 100 yards it will have a smaller shot pattern than from 150 and from 50 yards it'll be smaller than from a from 100 yards so you basically want to aim for the middle of the green on your longer shots and only as you get much closer to the hole you know if you're off the green chipping you want to chip the ball as close to the hole as possible you don't want to chip to the center of the green and i think that's just so intuitive and so simple but you know, most, most amateurs, you know, see the flag, hit at the flag, and that's not a recipe for shooting the lowest scores. On chipping, I, I feel like this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, th- I feel like this was one of your lessons I got out of your book. It's been a couple of years since I've read it. I'm probably due to go back through it. But I felt I've learned somewhere along the line the lesson with chipping is hit it, chip it really close, or it doesn't really matter where you chip it to. One, either poke holes in that, or two, explain why that is the case. That is the case. You want to chip it to leave yourself the shortest putt possible. Generally, you don't want to chip to, say, leave yourself uh, an uphill putt because then you'll have a lot more six-footers than than three-footers. A three-foot downhill side-hill putt on every green in, in the country, perhaps except some of the most steeply sloped, fastest fastest greens like Augusta or maybe a couple other greens in, in, in the country, maybe maybe Oakmont. Um, Three-footers from anywhere around the hole, you're going to sink at a much higher rate than a six-footer, which you'll sink at a much higher rate than a nine-footer. So distance is sort of king, and so you want to have the shortest putt possible, which means you want to center your shot pattern on a chip shots around the hole, just like you would for a 30- or 40-foot putt. You want to leave yourself the the shortest second putt to minimize your your three putt rate and this this notion of uh chip to leave yourself an easy second putt is just wrong because your second putt if it's from five or six feet is going to be tougher than a side hill three footer hmm. couple follow-ups on that and one a, I, I have a theory and i want you to poke holes in it at your will here but in, in my theory, great ball strikers have a bit of a price to pay when it comes to strokes gain putting because you're unlikely to leave yourself in a great spot to putt from with an approach shot compared to a lesser ball striker that might miss more greens. You know, when chipping up, they are more likely to leave themselves a more favorable putt, whether that be that uphill or, or the right to left or whatever that may be. Uh, and they're they're just mu- less likely to be above the hole, perhaps, than someone whose first putt comes, you know, directly after a shot that was played from 200 yards. Is there anything to that? Because I feel like I've tried to make this argument with Rory and his putting for a very long time, and I'm just hoping somebody could actually shed a light on that. So what you said theoretically is absolutely true. In practice, it makes so little difference as to be unmeasurable. So you take a look at some of the, the best ball strikers versus the worst ball strikers, and the, 
difference in the number of greens they hit might be one per round. The difference in, in proximity might be 20 feet versus 22 feet. So if you take a look at the distribution of putts that they have, uphill, downhill, side hill, from different distances, it's very, very similar across golfers. There are no golfers that systematically leave themselves more eight-foot uphillers compared to other golfers. It's, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. You've got a certain number of short putts, medium putts, long putts, side hill, uphill, downhill, and that distribution is very similar across golfers. And if a pro can't leave uh, an approach shot within 30 feet of the hole, it's not like they can leave it in a particular spot. It's going to hit and sort of roll to wherever it rolls, and depending on the, you know, the hole and, and the hole location, it might be more likely to be a downhill putt versus an uphill putt or over a ridge, but all of those things um, are pretty much beyond the control of, of a player. So if it was the case that they were systematically missing greens and chipping to certain spots and leaving themselves easier putts, then, then you would be right. So like I said, theoretically you're right, but I did look at strokes gain putting, accounting for green contours, accounting for uphill, downhill, and side hill. And the answer is, yeah, it makes a, a difference on individual putts, and it makes a small difference in a round or, or two, but over the course of the season, the rankings of putters by strokes gain putting Taking into account green contours versus not, there's almost no difference. Almost no difference. That, that that's one of those maddening things that is just hard to hard to come to terms with, right? I know you can tell me the numbers of an uphill eight footer, or, or you know, I would make less uh, more, you know, this less of those, I guess, than you know, a tough five footer. But it just one of those things that just doesn't feel that way in reality. I think that's I think that's freeing in a way, and can be frustrating in a way sometimes too, right? You know, I, I can feel like I'm struggling on left to riders for whatever reason, but what I think what you're saying is over over a big enough sample size to actually matter, you will find that, that the data will even out eventually regarding those things. I mean, have you ever on a, on a chip shot said that I'd, I'd like to have this uh, right to left breaking putt, so I'm gonna aim right of the hole rather than left of the hole for a left to right breaking putt? I mean, if you do that, again, you're systematically gonna have more right to left putts, which you think are easier, but they're also gonna be much further from the hole and distance dominates slope basically that was something i think i remember we talked about a couple years ago was you know maybe new frontiers and statistics would include uh information on on you know slopes and and things like that sounds like you have access to some of that information is that an expectation that we can you know something we can expect to see in the future uh as as golf fans as well or what is that data what, what are the lessons has that data taught you Oh, I hope so. I would love for it to be uh, incorporated into, into TV broadcasts and other analyses, which would say something like, well, this, this eight-footer, the, the average make percentage is, is 50%, but this straight uphill, the make percentage is 56%, or this downhill slider, maybe it's only 42%, because it, it does make a difference on, on an individual putt, and it really is another way to quantify the difficulty of the putt as, uh, as affected by, by the slope around the hole. So, you know, not all eight footers are created equal. I'm saying over the course of a season, it tends to average out, but wouldn't it be great on a broadcast to, to be able to know, you know, how much easier, more difficult a putt is. Hmm. Yeah. I think I always say something like, 
even uh, you know with either tee shots or with putts as well, kind of circles circles around a hole in terms of you know where that fifty percent mark is. You know, green on the inside, red on the outside from where they're putting from would would be great lessons to teach. And I think off the tee, you know, some kind of line in the fairway. You know, they have those lines that show longest drive of the day, or, and you know, on, on a couple of those holes, if they had some almost like the first down line in football. Where it showed, yeah, this line, if you hit it further than this, you're gaining shots on the field if you're hitting the fairway versus, you know, it helps really illustrate the guys that are losing shots versus gaining shots. I think there's a ton of ton of opportunity there, and I, I hope we hope we see something like that. Yeah, I love I love that idea. I'd much rather see a, a circle or an ellipse around the hole from a sand shot than, than the announcer saying, this player is a two for five in sand saves this week. Yes, like, that okay. that doesn't teach you a whole lot, right? It doesn't say it, that's combining two stats into one and not really quite telling the story. But something I've always struggled with is this element I think that seems pretty impossible to capture in data. That's a shot going behind a tree, a bad line, a bunker. Uh, you know, how, how does any of that get factored into stats, right? If I drive one into the lip of a bunker and I punch out sideways and hit it into into the fairway. I, my understanding, I'm paying the price on my strokes gain approach there and not my strokes gain off the tee. Is that is that accurate to say? And is, is the expectation just that over the course of a season or whatnot, those those numbers will all even out? Uh, so yes and no. So if, for instance, you have a, a buried lie in a greenside bunker, then that's really not part of the data. So it's pretty hard to tell this you know, nice lie versus a fried egg. Uh, but if you're behind a tree and you have to chip out, you can see that, and strokes gained will call that not a shot from the rough, but it will call it a recovery shot. And when you do that, that gives the penalty on the two shots combined to the tee shot and not to the chip, the shot that chips out. Same thing if you're, you know, in the in the sand by by a lip, and you you basically have to just just wedge it out from there. That would be called a recovery shot as well. So you have the normalized fairway, rough, sand, but we also have this other lie recovery, which means you don't have a a, a clear shot toward the hole, and when you've got a chip out, that's then labeled a recovery shot, and the uh, the penalty for that is attached to the tee shot, not the approach shot. Hmm. I never knew that. That it's not that's not there's not a strokes gain recovery stat available on websites. So that that makes that makes is that something that automatically does? It recognizes if you don't get it within a certain, you know, range of the hole that it's just a recovery shot? That's correct. Wow. Yeah. And that's um, yeah, something that could be split out just like we could have strokes gained approach from the fairway, strokes gained approach from the sand, strokes gained approach from the rough, you could have strokes gained you know, from recovery shots, but what that's one of the things I track on, on tee shots. Uh, what fraction, I, I don't care so much what fraction are put in the fairway. I do care what fraction are hit into recovery or penalty situations, because that's far more uh, important for um, strategy and, and other considerations. Hmm. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Walker Trolley. You've heard us talk about the Walker Trolley Cape 1.5. It's the number one premium push cart in the market. I cannot take the Walker Trolley Cape out and not get comments from somebody about it, asking about it, saying, oh, it kind of functions, looks like a stroller. It's got a beautiful aluminum frame and great use of waxed canvas and leather. It's a, it's a truly a push cart that stands out all over the golf course. It comes with even more storage options now. They got new sand and water bottle holders. 
Uh, they're made of 12 ounce wax canvas, and it gives you gives you a space to to store your bigger items as you play golf. It folds up super easy, goes right in your trunk. Couldn't be easier to set up and steer, and again, it's going to turn some heads. So now through the end of July, you can get a free sand and water bottle holder when you purchase a Walker Trolley Cape. Just add both items to your cart. Uh, the discount is applied automatically. And for existing trolley customers, you can get $10 off a sand and water bottle holder uh, with code NLUFREE now through the end of July. So you want to walk the course in style? Walker Trolley is the push cart for your game. Let's get back to Mark Brody. What can you tell us about angles? On the PGA Tour, it seems, it just seems what I'm watching, it seems pretty rare that they play a major impact just due to softness of turf and, you know, a player's ability to hit high shots these days. But are there any major takeaways from your research in terms of angles created off the tee or angles coming in approaching greens or anything like that? Uh, Well, I think the, you know, um, Scott Scott Fawcett and and Lou Stagner uh, have have done similar work and have been, you know, pretty vocal about it, and I think they they hit the nail on the head when they say angles matter, but you shouldn't take them into account in your strategy. Meaning, because of the way the the pin is cut, it could be better to be on the right side of the fairway than the left side of the fairway. But that doesn't mean you should aim for the right side of the fairway and put half your shots in the right rough, because that's far worse than having those shots from the right rough being somewhere in, in the fairway uh, versus having more shots, you know, also coming from the left side of the fairway. So angles matter, but you shouldn't change your strategy because of it. Whereas hazards off the tee matter and you should change your strategy because of it. And it, and it has to do with the, the size of the shot pattern and how you can move your target to avoid uh, a hazard typically. but when you move your target to favor one side of the fairway, you're because of the size of a player's you know tee shot or driver shot pattern, you're bringing more more shots from the rough into play, and that just outweighs the gain from the angle. So the difference between the the, the penalty for being in the fairway is greater than the advantage for having a better angle from the fairway. Hmm. I can I can definitely follow that for eighty plus percent, if not more, of of levels of golf. But I think is it fair to say, like if I'm watching the Open Championship, which we're we're recording this the day right after it, it wrapped, that you know it didn't play as firm this time around. But there are situations where the you know the firmer it gets, the angles you know there very well could be a situation where it's worth having balls in that right rough if that's a better angle than being in the left fairway. Is that anything that can be quantified in data? That's something that. I, I know I keep, that's very much shoved in our face of saying, like, it, it, these angles don't matter. Here's what the data says. But I find it super hard when I'm playing links golf, you know, in, and I'm in a situation where I have a 60-yard pitch shot off hard pan over a bunker to a firm green. I have a hard time picturing that I wouldn't be better off, you know, even being 120 yards away with a proper angle into the green and somewhere I can run the ball up onto the green. Is that something that can be quantified? Oh, absolutely it can, and absolutely that makes a difference. So I was speaking in in generalities, but it depends on how deep is the rough. So if you have pretty deep rough, and the rough on PGA Tour courses is uh, generally thicker and and heavier and tougher to get out of than on public or, or, or club courses, and it's even thicker and heavier U.S. Open courses uh, typically, so it depends on the rough. If you've got light rough, I know I know many amateurs that would rather be in the rough than the fairway because the ball sits up and there's less chance of thinning it or, or, or hitting it fat. But 
Another thing that you pointed out, you could be 60 yards away on hard pan and it's hard to spin it with a half with a half swing whereas from 100 yards you take a full swing and you can you can spin the ball so you can hit it higher and get it get it closer that way so those are real effects they can be measured and they're somewhat the the exceptions but they're they're important exceptions and so i i 100% agree you're you're not imagining that at all and that's where you know such a there's such a data overload now I think which I, I I'm in support of if I, if I'm you know not clear I'm a big fan of statistics I've learned a lot of lessons I think a lot of lessons are to be learned but at the same time there seems to be and it's a conversation we have pretty often when we are watching PGA Tour golf and it comes down to winning or losing tournaments which seems to be the way the ultimate way to decide the success of a player and that sometimes it, 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 the play that is required for you to win a tournament, to excel, to make a birdie when you are caught up in a probability maze, if you will, of so many players at the top, the, the, the data would suggest you should play this safe shot, yet if you need to make the birdie, it requires this particular shot. And I'm just wondering if you can weigh in on, if you're, if you're following what I'm saying there, if you can say, you know, PGA Tour shots are not linear. There's some shots that are more important than others when it comes down to the end of a tournament. If it's worth changing strategy, weighing in, saying a birdie here is worth this much concern, you know, and a bogey doesn't cost me as much as a birdie would get me. Do you see what I'm getting at? Absolutely, and I agree with you 100%. I think the, the problem is that club golfers and amateur golfers and even pros might think that on the, the first tee of round one that that, that uh, logic applies. I absolutely believe it applies late in the tournament when you're close to the lead. I absolutely believe it applies when you're a stroke or two outside the cut line you must become more aggressive because birdies are all that matter, bogeys and, and doubles are don't. And so you can can and should change your strategy because winning, there's a nonlinear payoff to winning, as you were saying, that uh, a win is worth so much more than a second or third that birdies become far more valuable than, than bogeys. And that means you should adjust your strategy to become more aggressive in those situations. It's the reason in, in hockey that teams that are behind by a goal pull the goalie. That You wouldn't pull the goalie in the first minute of a game because it's a negative expected goal strategy. It's more likely that the other team is going to score than, than you will. But late in the game, if you're down a goal, you don't care about losing by two goals or three goals. You care about getting that one goal to tie. And getting that one goal to tie, that probability will go up if you pull the goalie and put an extra skater out on the ice. It's the same reason that bunting in baseball in the early innings for you know, a non-pitcher typically doesn't make sense because outs are really valuable. It's not worth it to, to move a, long, a runner along you know, one, one base. But late in the game, if you're down by a run and you need a run to tie the game, bunting can become important. So your strategy should depend on where you are in the game and, and what the score is. And the same thing in golf. If you're near the lead with a few holes to go, you should change your strategy accordingly. Help me make sense, I guess, of two guys we've talked a lot about in, in recent months and, and weeks is uh, Tony Finau when it comes to his close calls in PGA Tour events and Louis Oosthuizen's run in major championships over the last uh, you know five, six, seven years and how they are able to succeed at such an incredibly high level 
yet not beat entire fields. And, I, and maybe I'm tying this in with a question of kind of what you think of stats like expected wins or, you know, some of the stuff I've, I, I often cite from datagolf.com uh, that, you know, kind of does analysis of based on how you played, you would expect to win this many tournaments, which we all know tournaments don't necessarily fall out that way. But is there anything that you know that would help explain why those two guys I mentioned seem to be rise to the top so frequently yet can't beat 100% of fields? Because I am at a loss for words for being able to explain it. I don't think I can explain it, but I really do think expected wins is is a great a great measure. I like the work that uh, the data golf guys do. Um, it's hard when you only have four majors, and so you only have four chances to win a major, or at most four different uh, major winners in a season. There's going to be so many other players that had a chance to win and have close calls that. You can you can sort of point the finger at a, at a lot of them. Why why didn't Spieth win this time? Why didn't Louis win this time? Why didn't Tony Finau win win this time? And you know some people are going to come up on the short end of the stick more often than others. So whether it's anything in the way they've approached it or the way they react to the situation, I I really couldn't tell you. But um, I think expected wins is is a very good good measure, and I used this back in 2017 in a, in a golf magazine uh, feature story about who's the best player without a major. And prior to, to 2017, you go through this expected wins analysis or expected major win analysis, and the person who was the most negative at the time was Sergio Garcia. And then he went and, and, and won the Masters and sort of got that, that monkey uh, off his back. But at the time, and again, this was about four years ago, then I went and said, okay, you know, who, now that Sergio is, uh, is off this list because of his major win, uh, who's next? And, and the rankings were Steve Stricker first, uh, Lee Westwood, Luke Donald, Matt Kuchar, and Paul Casey. And Steve Stricker at the time his expected major wins were one and a half so it's not like he was expected to win three or four and had zero he was at one and a half Lee Westwood at the time was at 1.2 same thing with with Luke Donald so um, you're really talking about about fine lines and uh, it's it's hard probably your observations watching TV you would have much better uh, analyses of what you saw with Louis Ustase and or Tony Finau than I would see in the data. I think it also just comes down to someone's got to be on the bad end of, the, of an expected wins number, right? Like just mathematically. <laughs> exactly. You know, what, some people are going to be, the, the names we know are going to be on the higher end uh, of the, you know, on the positive end of that. And someone's got to pay the price of it. And it's going to net out to you know, one, two or three people as it is. And I think those are the, the names that come to mind. But I tried to make this analogy on our uh, our recap podcast from Sunday of the uh, of the Open Championship, and trying to we always get super excited after a young guy wins, you know, maybe a major or multiple majors in projecting out their their overall career uh, majors win. So I'm going to put you on the spot with this one. If you were to set Colin Morikawa's over under for career majors, if you were a bookmaker, what would be a fair over under to set? Wow, I am on the spot, and I'm not sure I would give uh, my my answer here much much credence. But I would I would say five. 
Okay. I said over under four and a half, and uh, and some guys oh. were, were were taking. <laughs> you know, I always like to put the half in there, make you make you really think uh, on the over under. You know, push. Well, but I would have taken four and a half if I thought about putting in a half. But I put it. I I I equated it to, and I'm not. You sound like you're pretty in tune with baseball statistics as well. But I equated it to someone having a pretty high batting average on balls in play as it stands right now. And that when he's put himself in contention at majors, he has gotten victories out of it. And it'd be very unfair to project that pace of success, of converting success in a major to victory out for the rest of his career. Am I, am I onto something with that? Absolutely agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, if you look at Rory the week after he won his fourth major <laughs> exactly. and you ask the same question, what, what number would most people have said and take a look some number of years later and he's he's still at four and he's a great player it's not like he's gone anywhere he's still uh you know in the top 10 in the world and he's still contended and competed for plenty plenty of majors and it's hard there just aren't that many majors so i if anybody says that colin morikawa's you know over under on major wins is Six, seven, eight. I I think they're smoking something. Caught up in it. Caught up in some recent excitement. I have been that guy before. I think I've given Rory, given I've given away a lot of majors to Rory over the years. But on on the specific note on Morikawa, can you you know I I think it's still kind of flying under the radar. Maybe this past week has really brought it to attention. But his iron play prowess even has kind of snuck up on me. And I saw the stat couple weeks ago that it was the fourth best strokes gain approach season in history that he's having this current year uh the first three of course being different seasons from tiger woods and i was kind of like eh, all right there's got to be a typo in there somewhere turns out to be accurate can you add any perspective into just into just how great of an iron player colin morikawa is well one uh one measure of of greatness is you know what you just did comparing to tiger woods and i looked uh, uh a few weeks ago and i had colin morikawa gaining a stroke and a half shots per round on his approach shots. Which doesn't Uh, sound like a lot. Tell us why that's a lot, too. (laughs) (laughs) Why it's a lot? Well, usually the the leader in this stat at the end of the season is maybe at one shot per round. So that's 50% more than the typical leader in a season. If you take a look at Tiger Woods for his shot link career he's at three quarters of a stroke per round and he's one of the best iron players in in history if not the best iron player and as you mentioned he had uh several of these uh phenomenal strokes gained approach rounds which were over over one i have in 2012 he was at 1.4 2013 1.7 something something like that but so he's gaining 50% more strokes from his approach play than a typical leader in, in a season, which is just phenomenal. Put, put it another way, he starts a tournament six strokes up on the pack. So one and a half strokes better uh, for four rounds. That's, he's got a six-shot lead uh, walking into the first tee, and he needs to get to about 14, a 14-shot lead to win the tournament. So that's, uh, yeah, I think a, a measure of just how phenomenal his, his approach shots are. And I don't know, I haven't done this calculation, but it's something like, you know, his, his approach shots from 150 
are like an average tour player's approach shot from 100 yards. Oh, my God. <laughs> or his approach shots from 200 yards are like an average PGA Tour player's from 150. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly right. Don't quote me. But that's, that's the order of magnitude of what we're talking about to try and translate it into some other more understandable terms. That's what did it for me was when you put it on a per-tournament basis of, you know, even over the next best guy, he's two shots up on him, which is so many shots. If you, almost any pro golfer, if you shave two shots off your game, you make it to the highest level of, of you can play on the PGA Tour almost. That's that's the, the thin margin that we're talking about and what how big his gap is with iron play. It, it blows your mind. Yeah, Tiger's, Tiger, I think I was just flipping through his year by year. I think I saw 2006, he was over two shots uh, gain, strokes gain approach per round, which is uh, the highest that I that I had seen, but which is just flat out absurd. But what uh, what what's the next frontier in statistics? How can they how can they get even better? And, and what are what are reasonable expectations as to how how uh, you know data analysis in golf could get even better? Well, I think one way that that it gets better was is with better data, and the the technology is here. It's not quite cost effective yet, but to have trajectories on every shot and every putt. And so now you can take a look at launch angles and spin rates, but also how the ball is moving through the air, how high are players hitting it, how how low are they hitting it, where is it landing versus where is it finishing on the green. Uh, those kind of things, I think, open the open the door for for lots lots of uh, uh, new analyses and, and and new stats because you're trying to quantify what what golf fans sort of know and what what players know, and it's you know from 200 yards you want to hit your your long irons high, and from 80 yards you want to hit your wedges low which is one of those contradictions. But if you're 200 yards away, how do you get it to stop close to the, to the hole? Well, it's either trajectory or spin. And it would be nice to know how much of those things influence uh, outcomes for various players. And, and, and we're close because, uh, you know, radar systems, camera systems, launch monitors are, are available. It's just a question of deploying them. I mean, who doesn't want to see more of the tracer technology on TV broadcast. Well, imagine you had that for every player and every shot. Then you can do some really wonderful analyses. Maybe this was this question may have fit a little bit better when we were talking about Finau and Ustazen. But I, I want to cover the, the the topic of variability, and that you know, in just watching Morikawa this past week, he is, as we know, not a very strong putter. His stats do not check out very well uh, when it comes to putting, but he does seem volatile with the putter. And it seems like averages, you know, we see averages a lot when it comes to strokes gain, all of this stuff, but how does variability get rewarded in golf? Hitting your averages every week, I would think would give you probably zero wins, but some volatility could mean lifting a lot of trophies. And I, I don't, I don't know what my question is related to that, but I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to, uh, the benefits of being volatile and having a really high peak might be in pro golf. Well, I think you'd like to see a player who's consistent with their ball striking and has variability in, in putting. And it's, it's the case that the best ball strikers tend to rise to the top of the leaderboard week in and week out. The winners in any given week tend to be the best putters out of this group of the best ball strikers. So Rory talks about his driver being a consistent weapon because he is so long and relatively straight with his driver that he can count on that week in and week out. 
Colin Morikawa can count on his irons week in and week out. They're not going to win every week, but if they have a hot putter that week, that's going to really increase their, their chances of, of winning. And there's a lot more uh, variability in, in putting rounds. In a given round, you could, in the extreme cases, gain six strokes with putting, or you could lose five or six strokes with a horrible putting round. That, that variance is, is huge where you don't see that kind of variance in, in driving because Rory is consistently gaining 20 yards on his, on his drives. We, it's not like one week he's 40 yards longer on average and the next week he's three yards longer on average. He's about 20 yards longer week in and week out. So that consistency that comes from distance leads to consistent strokes gained in, in driving. So consistent strokes gained in, in ball striking get you to be one of the, the top players in the world and it translates into win on those weeks where you have a hot putter. That's a little bit of a, of a simplification, but I think it gets at your question about variability. Nope, that does. That makes a, a lot of sense. What would a, what would a situation have to be for you to recommend to a player, yes, you are better off laying back here than hitting it further down the hole. And you touched on some of that when we were talking about 60-yard shots, not being able to hold spin. Is there a number, and you can, maybe that's a pro golf and an amateur golf question, that number might be very well be very different. But I recall hearing something along the lines of Tiger learning if he hit it to you know 55 yards or to, to from 40 to 55 yards, he was terrible or something, and he never laid up to that number, something along those lines. Because in general, you know, I hear fights against, yeah, don't lay up to your favorite number, like get it very close. But I think there is also being too close in that regard. I'm wondering if you can share any insight there. So I, I do think that there's a difference between amateurs and pros, but the difference between 80 or 90 yards or 80 or 100 yards, if that's your favorite wedge distance versus 30 or 40 or 50, almost every tour player, probably every tour player, is significantly better from 30, 40 or 50 yards than they are from 80, 90 or 100. Uh, even if they feel like it's an uncomfortable distance from, from 50 yards, and again, the, the exceptions are, are things like on your second shot, if there's water right up near the green, you might, not, you might want to lay a little bit further back to avoid that hazard. That's primary consideration number one. The second is if the pin is tucked just over a bunker and the best play is to hit a little long of the pin and spin it back, you might be able to do that better from 80 or 90 yards than from uh, 40 or 50 yards. So spin and, and hole locations is the second consideration. And then for amateurs, if you have the chip yips and you know from 50 yards you're more likely to chunk it or skull it than you are from 100, then I'd say the message is, yeah, for you, you should hit to 100 yards and you should also take a lesson because you're much worse from 50 yards than you should be because almost everybody, amateurs included, are better from 50 yards than 100. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, a topic that we also cover a lot on this podcast to the point where I think people are sick of me talking about it because you could, but you could explain a lot better than I could would be uh, the official world golf rankings. And I think my, my opinion on them shifted greatly with, uh, with a, a paper you published on, on how the, the official golf rankings are, the points are distributed and how it may potentially be unfair worldwide. Can you give listener, could you could explain kind of uh, your, your theory, I guess, on that? Uh, and whether or not you think you see any any potential changes coming down the pipe in the in the world golf rankings. 
So when um, when I published uh, the the Every Shot Counts book, it one of the messages was drive for show, putt for dough might be the most famous expression in golf, but it's also wrong. Or you know, bomb and gouge is is not right because. Uh, the, the value of distance is huge, but these players aren't gouging it out of the rough uh, all the time. So some of it was counterintuitive or, or surprising, whereas uh, for the official World Golf Rankings, my colleague Dick Randleman and I published the, the paper that you referenced in 2013 that analyzed the official World Golf Rankings, and our conclusion was that the rankings were biased against PGA Tour players. And unlike other work, Many people said, yeah, we knew that. It's obvious. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't surprising. You're just telling us what, what everybody already knows. And I was like, oh, okay. But all we did as academics was objectively measure and quantify that bias. Um, so it wasn't surprising to, to, to many people, but it was at least, um, like I said, quanti you know, quantified that, that, that bias. And then uh, there have been a number of other articles. I had hoped then, Dick and I uh, had hoped that that would, you know, lead to some sort of change. And I think it, it did lead to some conversation and some talk in the, in the golf community. But, you know, no change, you know, has, has happened. And then in uh, 2019, among others, Doug Ferguson, who's a writer for the Associated Press, basically said the same thing, that the official world golf rankings, he goes... Um, is still biased. It's been like that for the better part of 20, 20 years. We've pointed, Dick Rendleman and I pointed out a flaw, and the question then is now one of change management. It's something that uh, other of my colleagues in a business school know more about than me. How do you go from uh, a system that has some flaws to, to, to a better system, and how do you actually get that implemented and, and accepted? And that's a little bit beyond my pay grade. What what is that? What would you say the, the you know the inputs are in that in their model that that drive the flaw, right? I mean, I know one of them being, you know, on the European and Asian tours that they have no matter the field strength, they have a minimum number of points that they're required to give away on an event basis. Is that the main driver of it? Yeah, I would I would say that it's um, one one. I would say, you know, the 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 flaws that. That, that you refer to are not so much in the top 20 or 10 or 30 in the world because the best players tend to play against each other in, in majors, in world golf championships, and a lot of time in uh, you know, the premier uh, PGA Tour events and, and European Tour events. The, the impact is more on players outside the top 35 or, uh, or, or 50. And the points are distributed according to a strength of field calculation, and uh, I think you can do better than count how many players are in the top 200. If you've got a weaker field and there's not many players in the top 200, then or no players, then what the official World Golf Rankings use is this, you know, alternative minimum, and that's somewhat somewhat arbitrary and not necessarily a fair representation of, of the strength of field. So I, I think there's ways to, to improve the system, but the minimums I think are one are one issue. 
Yeah, I think I my issue with it be is kind of what you're saying there. You can you can rise up the rankings without going head to head with a lot of these players. You know, you can you can bypass guys that are playing against top players week in week out, and you know you can you can beat a lot of 200 and 300 ranked players and, and find yourself rising up into even into the top 50 in the world, which seems seems a little bit backwards, but. Um, what, how, one, one final kind of question here that, uh, I want to know how you measure clutch. I don't really know how to ask that question. I just want to know if, if clutchness is a, a predictable skill in golf and if you have any, uh, any insight on that. So I think of, uh, clutch play as having two components. One is how well do you perform, which is strokes gained as one measure and when, when, are you worried about this? And usually final nine holes of, of a tournament when you're in the lead or, or close to the lead. So how do you take those those two things into account? Well, strokes gain measures performance, but clutch is when your win probability is, is significant or when the change in win probability is significant, which is also referred to as uh, a high leverage situation. So if you have you know, 1% chance to win a tournament or less, then it doesn't matter what you do on the next few holes, you're not gonna win. It's, it's not uh, a sort of a clutch or high leverage situation. But if your win probability is you know, 20 to 20 to 30%, it only has two ways to go, up to one or down to zero. And the changes in win probability are, are huge. So win probability is the primary way to measure uh, pressure or to measure the leverage of a situation and it takes into account how many strokes behind the leader are you the the further behind you are the lower your win probability but also how many players are in between you and the leader so you could be two strokes behind and there's only the leader in front of you where you could be two strokes behind and you've got to pass five other people and the last thing that matters is there one, two, five, nine holes left. So all three of those can be nicely summarized by, by win probability. And so I think of, of measuring clutch play as strokes gain piled on top of a, a win probability calculation. So I, I just got some late breaking news. Uh, the PGA of America just announced that Mark Brody is the captain of the 2021 United States Ryder Cup team. Uh, how would you go about filling out a Ryder Cup team with all the access to all the data you have? I struggle with, with, with trying to figure out, we have all this measured stroke play data, applying that to match play situations and, and team environments and matching up players that would play well together. What are considerations you would make in that process? Well, I'd first uh, resign and, and turn over my captainship to somebody who's more, more qualified than me. <laughs> but... Uh, a lot of what people, I think, talk about um, would, would go into the, the thought process, which is who are the best players overall? And that, by that, I mean over uh, a substantial period of, of time. I wouldn't pick Phil Mickelson because he won the PGA Championship and has not performed well otherwise. So overall, I mean over some nine-month to two-year period of time. But you also want to see sort of who's hot, who's in form, who's playing best currently. So you can you can measure that over some more recent time period, one, two, three, or four months, something like that. Then you want to look at you know who plays better or worse on this particular Ryder Cup course. Uh, and then you want to look at who pairs well with others. 
uh, in terms of their game. I'm not so much, uh, don't have much knowledge in terms of the, uh, the psychology, or maybe you want two players who are friends or two players from the same country. Uh, or same state playing playing together and also who performs the best under pressure I think is something you might want to consider but with with a great qualification that performance under pressure is almost necessarily a small sample size and so you got to be careful about how well somebody performed under pressure in the past is not necessarily of you know a guarantee of these returns in in, in the future as the uh, the government warnings say when you uh, invest in hedge funds. But I think you want to take all those factors in, into account. Uh, exactly how you do that, um, I'm not sure. Hmm. That's what I've been screaming from the rooftops is somebody that you know comes up and has that high variability week of winning something, sp- Phil being the specific example, that that does not necessarily project out very well. I never understood why winning an event in May means you're going to play great in match play four months later on a totally different golf course. That's that's what I feel like I, a point I have to keep making to some of my other colleagues that I won't name, but uh, one that doesn't. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that argument, so uh, I, I agree. I agree there. Absolutely. Well, are, are, are there any new misconceptions about data in golf or anything you hear on TV that you, know, you still kind of roll your eyes at? And I, and I say that kind of partially wondering – if we've maybe steered too far away from drive for show, putt for dough, I think you may have answered some of that in terms of how much week to uh, you know a single week of great putting can impact you and whatnot. But just kind of wondering if you feel like uh, you know there, there's any any still lingering misconceptions out there or any new misconceptions you're seeing. I don't think this is what you're you're headed for, but I think one misconception is that strokes gained is just for pros because. You see it on PGATour.com, you might see it in, in broadcasts or podcasts or newspaper articles. It's great for amateurs, and there's many more amateur golfers than there, than there are pros. And just as fairways, greens, and putts are not very informative for pros, they're not very informative for amateurs either. And I think if every amateur who wanted to improve their score tracked their shots and looked at a strokes gain report for one or more rounds, I think they would very quickly see where their strengths and weaknesses lie, where they should get a lesson, or where they should practice. And for many, it's it's pretty eye-opening. Yeah. The, the, the most freeing thing I learned from your book was I used to put a lot of pressure on my putting, and if I miss an eight-foot par putt, I blamed my putter for that. And, you know, if it's a 400-yard hole and I miss the eight-foot par putt, I said you you waste you wasted a full shot with your putter right there, and that's just not the case. And it took me a long time to learn. I actually just lost a half shot. And hey, if you were better at the ball striking part of this, you would not have the eight footer for par. The best way to prevent, you know, losing shots is to not leave yourself the eight footer for par. And that helped so much. That helped visualize the whole the whole thing to me. What? So if we started, let's say we started at zero. Uh, with strokes get, went before strokes gained, and then the day strokes gained came into this world, uh, that was you know we we're that's that's day one. How far are we going to run up against the data wall? Things have moved so far, right? And I, I'm asking this question in a very confusing way, but I'm saying how much more room is there in golf, both from what we've learned from analytics, you know, to keep expanding? What pers- what percentage of the way uh, along the way of optimization are we in terms of stats and analytics and how that affects the way the game is played? Well, I think we're maybe. 30% on, and I think golf is this sort of infinitely intricate game that there's there's a lot more to go, and I'm really 
amazed if I'm making up the number, the number 30%. But when you started off the, the podcast, that's, can you give us a quick explanation of strokes gained? I would say probably 80% of the golfers out there have no clue what it is. So I think there's a huge amount of uh, education uh, still still to do. And I think there there's a lot of, uh, of possibilities there. Um, and then for sort of more refined stats, I think a lot of it would be, as you mentioned earlier, let's have better data visualization and graphics on, on TV rather than just here's another number, here's yet another number. It would be nice to be able to, to visualize things uh, a little bit better and layer that on top of the, uh, the video feed. I think that, that I hope is coming and I think would make a big difference. Yeah, I think that would serve golf fans greatly. Last, last question, we're going to get you out of here on this. What's, what's been the highlight of your golf journey? Your name is you know, synonymous with this movement in golf. What's, what's the coolest thing that's come out of it for you? Well, I, I certainly never expected to uh, uh, meet and develop friendships with as many uh, PGA Tour players and European Tour players and, and coaches as I have. That was, you know, I'm, I'm an academic and I spend eight to ten hours a day at a desk typing away at a computer and then people ask what how did COVID affect you and for me not not as much as others I still spend eight or ten hours a day typing away at a, at a computer but uh, when I go to, to golf events and I, I just know many of the pros and I know many of the coaches and that's certainly been uh, uh, been a highlight but it's it's really gratifying to see analytics make such inroads into media TV radio podcasts and articles and uh, even more than that, it's rewarding to hear many pros and college players and, and others say that strokes gained has changed the way they approach the game, the way they practice. Um, you know, Bryson is one example of somebody that you know realized the value of distance. Uh, Roy McIlroy called strokes gained the best new stat in golf in well, and then he said forever really. Uh, couldn't ask for anything more than more than that. So it's been just you know loads of fun living the dream. Well, I'll say in, in the first podcast we did, you, I asked you what what could, what should amateurs work on? What should they what shot should they practice? You told me the 150 yard shot. I can safely say I have worn out the face of my nine iron. It's the it has the most wear of any club in my bag since you said that, and I can report back I've gotten a lot better. So that's one fantastic one final <laughs> nugget to to leave people with there and, and how uh, how they can improve at the game of golf. But Mark, thanks so much. Uh, one for all the data work you've done uh, in preparation for this podcast uh, and uh, for coming on and telling us some telling us uh, teaching us up on some things. I think uh, people will take a lot from this one. I know I sure did. So thanks so much for your time. Greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for having me on, and thanks for all that, that you guys do to, uh, to, to bring golf to uh, a much wider audience. You, die, you guys do, do fabulous, so thanks for everything you do. Appreciate that. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect any 